chapter 15, in the gospel according to John, uh, <clears throat> we mentioned before when we first started the book of John that one of the things that's noted for is these particular I am statements of Jesus, I am the light, I am the bread of life, I am the way and the truth and the life, etc., uh, we are about to read the last one of those in God, John's gospel. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. But abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, uh, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abided his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no man than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends, which is what Jesus is just about to do. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you uh, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love uh, one another. Jesus is not only a vine. Jesus is the one and only true vine. I don't know how much experience you have with grapevines because very clearly Jesus is talking about grapevines here. They were very prolific in the ancient Near East. People were very dependent upon the produce of grapes for their livelihood. They also used it for making wine, uh, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, I actually have some personal experience with grapevines. <laughs> Uh, Lori and I live right down the street here in, in an area that's pretty heavily wooded and, and et cetera. And if you go into areas like that in Florida, you're going to find these things called possum grapes. And I'm telling you, when we first bought our lot, it was so covered with possum grapes, vines, that you couldn't even tell what, it had trees on it, but they were completely covered with, with these grape vines. And so you couldn't even tell whether it was a pine tree or an oak tree or whatever kind of tree it was. Uh, but I spent a lot of time pulling, digging, tearing up grapevines because they are so prolific in this particular area. 
We understand that grapes were very much a, a part of the staple uh, of the life of the people in the ancient Near East. Uh, they used the grapes for food. They used the grape juice for making wine uh, and that sort of thing. So this is, a, this is one of those analogies that Jesus uses that the people that he's, he's speaking to directly can really take what he's saying and apply it to the manner in which they personally live. This is something they know something about. This is something that is very common and practical uh, all around them. So what does it mean that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches? Well, if you think about a grapevine plant, certain parts of it do particular things. They have roots, and let me tell you, they have one heck of a root system. And until you get the whole root system up, you're going to be fighting grapevines eventually. Uh, but we know that the roots, what they do is they collect all the nutrients from the soil and the water from the soil because they're those things that every plant has to have, right? And so that's how they contribute to the well-being of the whole plant, the other parts of the plant, on the other hand, provide their roots with things that they need. The leaves, for instance, they photosynthesize and they produce sucrose. They produce sugar that the cells that make up even the roots have to have to survive. So the whole plant, every part of the plant is dependent upon every other part of the plant. Jesus, most specifically at this time, he's saying to these guys that I am the vine and you are the branches. See, the vine, the main vine, is rooted in the soil, and as it goes up, it branches out into the branches, and we know that the branches are where the fruit is actually produced. But the fruit that's produced, the, that production is dependent upon every other part of the plant, on the roots, on the stem. And if you take away any of those parts, none of it works. They're all dependent upon one another. just as we are dependent upon Christ for all things. Jesus not only declares himself to be the vine, he also says that he, in fact, is the true vine, the real vine, not the fake vine, not the false vine. There are all kinds of things in the world that would promise us all kinds of things. None of which can they provide. Jesus is the only one that can give us everything that we need. And not only what we need, to, to the fullness of what we need.
Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Or literally what it means is remain in me or dwell in me, endure in me. He is the vine and we are the branches. He provides for us all that we need. And as we abide in Christ, we produce fruit for him. Not grapes, but the fruit of good works in such things as this. Sometimes even were used in the process of bringing some new person to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Vine dressers prune the vines. In other words, when you go to an orchard, you're not going to find that they just plant the, the vines and just let them go and you know, once a year they show up to harvest, and that's all they do for them. They don't do that. They work on them all the year round. They prune off, for instance, if they come across a branch that's not producing any fruit, what do you think they do with it? They cut it off. They prune it off. Because what the, what the grape owner wants is to get the maximum number of grapes out of the crop that he possibly can. And so they prune the vines. They remove branches that are not being fruitful. And I want to remind us this morning as Christians, we are called to be fruit bearers. Now what exactly that fruit is going to look like for all of us is probably not going to be exactly the same. But it does mean that our lives must, in fact, be fruitful for Christ. Sometimes that's going to be mean ministering just simply to other people in the church. Sometimes it's going to be mean ministering to people outside the church. And on some occasions, it may actually involve you helping someone coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ yourself. I mean, Jesus speaks in very strong language here, and he's basically saying here, if there's no fruit in your life, then you don't have faith. Now, sometimes people want this to be this. That he's walk, talking about here is evangelism, and that's all he's talking about. So if you look at your life, and there's not another face per person on the planet that is a believer, at least in part because you witness to them, or they've seen the way that you are, or this, that, and the other, then you're not bearing any fruit. That's not what this passage is about. I want you to know that, even though some people would tell you that. There are faithful people that share their faith over and over again in their whole lifetime and maybe never, ever, ever one time see a single person come to faith in Jesus Christ. What God wants from us is faithfulness. Faithfulness to our calling. And that calling is sharing with other people what we know. What I would say to you more than anything else is what Jesus is talking about here is the fruits of the Spirit. 
not evangelism. The emphasis in the New Testament is on the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul gives us some examples of fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, which would be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It doesn't say anything about discipling other people. In other words, when you're a believer, these fruits of the Spirit will be displayed in the manner in which you live your life. That there will be a gentleness about you. That there will be peace and there will be joy about you. That there will be some degree of self-control about you. All of these things are evidence of the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in you. In other words, what we're talking about here is real and true evidence of a life transformed by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus who lives within us. Ever hear of William Carey? 1800s, he was an English missionary that went to India. Do you understand that he was in India for seven whole years before he saw the first converts? Don't get me wrong, evangelism is a big aspect of who we are and what we're supposed to be about. And just let me tell you this, it is, it's believers, that, but, but evangelism, at least to some degree, is going to be of our nature to do it. Not something we have to make ourselves do, not something we have to twist our arm to get us to do, but, but when we're really abiding and resting in Christ, it will happen naturally. Not forced, not ram-crammed and jammed, like so many people go at it. You understand that the greatest message you have to bear to the world around you is the manner in which you live. That other people see in you things that they don't have for themselves. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. It is Christ that enables us to do that. And without his enabling grace, we would not be able to. How many times have you heard people describe things in, in this light? And that is, it's, it's almost like being a Christian. It is you holding on to Christ as strongly as you can. And it all depends upon your strength. It all depends upon your ability to hold on to him. That is not at all the picture that the Bible paints us. It is all about Christ holding on to you. Not the other way around. Because let me tell you something. If your salvation depends upon you holding on to him, you're gone. It's only a matter of time. But what if indeed your salvation rests upon the fact that Christ has laid hold of you and he will never, he will not let you go. What are your chances of making it all the way? 
Well, we know this. If you've been around Christians in the church for any time, you know that at least on occasion there will be people who come along and at least for a time they seem to really be on fire for Jesus. But then they fall away. They fall away and they deny the Savior that they claim to at one point. That is the Father pruning the vine. And it's the best thing that could happen to that person. Because they're living a false life. They're making a false claim. And the hope is this, is that when God cuts them loose, that maybe that will be the thing that actually brings them back. It brings them to the point they should have been at to start with, but we're not. I mean, we've seen things like this happen. We've seen pastors fall from grace at times. There was a young man named Joshua Harris that, that had a good deal of influence upon Lindsay and Justin's generation. I can remember him speaking out, you know, in regard to dating practices for, for teenage Christians and this, that, and the other for years and years and years. Do you know that a time came when he denied his faith? He fell away? These disturbing or this disturbing news about Ravi Zacharias, who just recently died in, and again, you don't know what's true and what's not true in today's world. This uh, is very confusing sometimes, but all of this sexual sinful stuff that was supposed to be supposedly a big part of his secret life. The fact of the matter is this, is that Christ Jesus knows all of those who are his and he knows all of those who are not his. We are a church that practices church discipline. Some people do not like that. We do it because Jesus tells us to do it. It's nothing that anybody should love to do, nothing anybody should take great pleasure and joy in doing, and if you do, then I got real concerns about where you're at. It is one of the most heart-wrenching things that you might ever be involved in in your whole lifetime. But either we're faithful to what Christ tells us to do or we're not. And let me tell you, the most of the church today is not. They, it does not practice church discipline in any way, shape, or form. We do. And it's not because we love it. It's not because we think we're better than other people. It's it, because Jesus, in essence, forces us to do it. It's his will and purpose for his church. I've been involved in enough of it now right, to tell you right now that I wish I never, ever had to participate in it again. I hate it. I abhor it. I would rather have my teeth pulled out of my mouth. 
that if we're going to be faithful to Christ, we have to be faithful to all he calls us to do. And one of those is to do church discipline. You need to understand that church discipline at times is God's way of pruning the vine. Now, I, I, can, I can tell you, we have done very little of this at Springs Presbyterian Church. Hallelujah, Lord, we haven't had to do much. Praise God. You need to understand that we're not talking about a little wandering and, you know, this little sin, the, you know, the sins that we, whatever. We're talking about people that become apostate and whatever, and they still claim the name of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew, and this, what I'm telling you, this is God's means of using the church to prune the vine. As much as possible. He says in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. End of story. When have you ever gone to anybody and said, you know what, I think you need to think about something. It doesn't end there. Jesus says if he does not listen, then you're supposed to go again and you're supposed to take other people with you to, to be witnesses of the fact that the conversation took place. And then if there's repentance, end of story. But then there's step number three, and that is if, if you've gone through the first two steps and nothing has happened, the person is not repentant. Then you're supposed to take it to the church. And if he won't even listen to the church, then you're to let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat him as an unbeliever, maybe claiming to be a believer. He or she. But the fact that they are unrepentant. Is an indication that they may be claiming faith in Christ. But they don't really have it. Let me tell you. There probably are some really weird people who enjoy doing stuff like that. But I can't imagine a Christian ever being joyous about disciplining somebody. It is heart-wrenching. But this is one of the things that God, that Jesus has given us to help prune the vine. And let me tell you, the worst thing we can do is to encourage someone who clearly does not believe to continue to think that they do. And we're not talking about piddly little things. 
Reality is if we were talking about piddly little things, everyone in this room, you could spend the rest of your life doing nothing but dealing with key sin. Don't even worry about anybody else's. Don't worry about your own. Don't worry about anybody, but concentrate on mine, and it would keep every one of you busy all the time. We're talking about more significant things that before the public, in essence, brings shame to the name of Christ. What if you came to a knowledge that I was having an affair? What would you do? Of course, most of you are saying, well, Keith would never do anything like that. I would hope that you would love me enough to discipline me for it. Because in discipline, that is always the hope, is that by going through this process, it will actually drive that person back to the cross of Christ. That's the whole reason for doing, or one of the main reasons for doing it. I can tell you stories about discipline cases because I've been involved in far more of them at presbytery level than I even care to think about. So we're talking about pastors disciplining pastors. Doesn't take place all that much in the congregations like Springs, but let me tell you something, it takes place on a regular basis in a presbytery. We've had just a handful of even... even any kind of thing you would call a discipline case in all these years at Springs. I've been involved in probably 25 discipline cases at presbyteries, at least one a year. And we're talking about pastors in every situation. We're not talking about just people sitting in the pews. We're talking about pastors that are being disciplined. Some of these people were people I was relatively close to. One of them was a man that I sat under his teaching in seminary in in numerous classes over the years. I had a high regard for this man. I respected this man a great deal. He, He came here years ago and did a Bible conference for our church. I mean, it's, it's And when it came time to vote, you know what? I abstain. You can do that. Because I felt like I was so personally connected to this person in this situation. I just did not feel good about voting yes or no on it, so I abstained from voting. It's the only time I've done that. But let me tell you what the end result of it was. 
you know, it was all, it was all based upon marital problems, accusations from his wife, that kind of thing. This man, let me tell you, he was very highly regarded for everybody that knew him. He was like a monument. And you know what happens very often in monuments? God brings them down. Because he's going to have nothing standing in a place that is only his to stand. And through all of this, I got to witness the humanity of this man and the humility of this man. Not his humiliation, his humility that came forth in all of this. And I can stand here this morning and tell you I have every reason to believe that he is just as solid in his faith as you and I are. But this disciplining process that we took him through, as painful as it was for him and as painful as it was for us, ultimately worked for his benefit. Again, I want to say this to you this morning because you're not going to hear this very often. That is that church discipline is a gift that's given to the church for at least two reasons. One's for the glory of Christ. Another one's for the good of the unrepentant sinner because with a hope that it's going to put them in a place where they understand And I'd say there's another thing, and that is that it's a reminder to each one of us what great sinners we can actually be. Where we are right now. That none of us is removed from this. Do you understand how important it is for each one of us to encourage each other through deep and meaningful relationships with each other? There's a sense in which that is, at least in part, the lifeblood of the church, having other believers that you can actually be honest with about things that you struggle with and, and, and not be in fear of being condemned and kicked out as a result of it. Jesus goes on to say this. He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, let me ask you something. Do you really think you're capable of loving someone in the same manner that Christ has loved you? If you do, you need to rethink things. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I want you to understand something. This is an imperative. 
You understand what an imperative is? It is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not, this is a good idea. You might want to think about doing this. Jesus commands us. Just as he commands us, you shall not have any gods before. In other words, we have no choice in the matter. See, people should experience many things in the church that they will never get from the world, and one of those is absolutely, completely unconditional love. See, human nature teaches us to place conditions on our love. I'll love you if you do this, or I'll love you if you love me first. I'll love you if, 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 if. Jesus doesn't give us that option. He tells us from the very get-go that we are to love people that are absolutely, completely unlovable. And I want you to know something this morning, that you look upon yourself and you think you're just a wonderful, great person that anybody would just give anything to have. God sees you as a sinner. He knows how bad, he knows far better than you and I know of ourselves how bad we really are. His election is unconditional. His love is unconditional. He never says, I will love you if you do this, that, or the other. Which we very often do, don't we? In our relationships with other people, I'll love you as long as you do for me what I think you ought to do. Or I'll love you as long as you don't do things that I don't want you to do. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Our love is always conditional. It's one of the reasons why we have a hard time wrapping our head around this concept of a love that is unconditional. God's love for you is not based upon any condition. It's not based upon anything you do or how well you do it. And as we experience that unconditional love, it ought to be something that we naturally pass on to other people. But how often do we put limits, restrictions? I'll love you if you do this, or I won't love you, I won't love you if you do that. You've got to make the mark from me first, then I will love you. And let me tell you, if God's waiting for anybody to make the mark for him to love them, he never would love anybody. Ever. We're reformed here, and I'm not going to apologize for it. God saves people. People don't save themselves. That was one of the basic principles that came forth very clearly in the Protestant Reformation. And there are a lot of Protestants that have drifted a long way away from that. We have not. Jesus says this. 
you did not choose me. I chose you. And how many people today believe that it's totally up to uh, anybody and everybody, if you hear about Jesus, that you have the, within you the ability to choose Christ without any help from anybody else? And I want to remind us this morning that he chose us for reasons, some which are unknown, I'll just be honest with you. Some of you guys, I don't have a clue why I chose you. I'm just teasing. I'm the person that I think about when it comes to all of this. Why? That's the biggest question for me is why me? Why me? Why me? Why would you want anything to do with me? Why would you love me? Why would you care about me at all? But he chose us and he appointed us for his reasons that are not clear to us. And very often not clear to anybody else either. Your conversion may have really stymied a few folks. <laughs> I mean, I heard comments coming from people, some of my closest friends, you're the last person I ever thought would become a Christian. You see, one of the reasons I believe so strongly in these doctrines of grace is because it's what I experienced myself. I didn't go looking for God. God came looking for me. I didn't want him. He wanted me. I didn't love him. He loved me. He says this. He said... He, he, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you. He, so he chose us for reasons. And one of the reasons he gives us here very clearly is that you should go and bear fruit. Be fruitful in your Christian life. Not be one of those branches that eventually gets pruned off. Because it's not producing any fruit. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean the fruit of evangelism. It can mean that to some degree, but it's, it's bearing the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all that sort of thing. In other words, living a life that displays the presence of God in you. That other people see it. And they want it. Because they don't have it. You understand that's the very greatest means of evangelism? Is to show the world a life that is captured and cultivated by Christ himself? And I'm going to tell you, when that happens, love will be one of the biggies. Not love of self which comes natural to people. We all are self-lovers, right? But a love that goes beyond us, that touches really the lives of people who desperately 
need to feel and know love. So what is our message for today? Could it be like something like go and bear fruit? Because he's worthy of it. Because he's God. Because you and I aren't. Because he deserves it. He does. He does. He deserves it. He deserves your heart. He deserves your life. Committed wholly, 100% fully to him. Celebrate Thanksgiving to the utmost. May a big part of it be the fact that you are a child of a living God. Wow. How can you know that and not be thankful? Amen.